Welcome to Wallachia. Previously in Flowers of Transylvania, the Princess of Springtime had been taken. He was clad in black from head to foot and wore a dark cloak, which seemed to flow of its own accord as he made a deep bow. She introduced herself. Elisabetta, extending a hand, then said, Welcome to Castle Dracula. What does he want with me? asked Karina. To educate you. To bring you out of the small village and into the wider world. Grass to lift all the small to the edge of the bed. A hand wrapped itself around her mouth. Quiet, whispered a voice. I'm not supposed to be in this wing. I'll let you go, but you mustn't scream. A pause. Quiet as a butterfly, okay? Corina nodded and was released. Dominic, she gasped. I think you'll have to stay here for now, but, said Dominic, I know how we can see each other. Chapter 3. Day and Night in Castle Dracula. Corina started to find that her new life in the castle felt comfortable. Comfortable. That described it well. Life on the farm was rarely comfortable. If an animal wasn't scratching or pecking at her, she was burning herself making stew or wearing out her arms grinding grain. Here, a maid helped her change from one perfectly clean dress to another. Her only activity was their morning walk, and she was fed twice as many meals as she ate at home, none of which were made from grain she'd had to grind herself. Whether or not she'd be able to get used to the comforts, Corinna had begun to relish their daily lessons. She loved reading and learning. The other girls were interesting, from places all over Transylvania, from Saxon villages to Hungarian villages, and they'd been to places she'd never heard of. Elisabetta said Count Dracula wanted them to become ambassadors of knowledge, spreading what the French were calling an age of enlightenment throughout Transylvania. This week, said Elisabetta, we begin our study of metaphysics. Plato believed that souls were the immortal parts of the body that, when present, made it alive. The soul was responsible for a living thing's reason, spirit, and appetite, and when a person died, the soul would find another body to inhabit. For Aristotle, too, all living things had souls, from plants to animals to humans. There were, in his view, different functions that a soul can provide, from the requirement of nourishment, which rocks lack, to growth and decay, an ability that plants possess, to the abilities of movement and perception in animals, to, finally, intellect. Aristotle's concept, however, didn't require the soul to be separable from the body. The soul animates the body, but they need each other. A body without a soul isn't alive, but, he thought, a soul cannot persist once its body has died. But what if Strigoi, asked Freya, the girl from the Transylvanian Saxon village. All Transylvanian girls were raised on horror stories of the restless spirits that sometimes lingered after a person died. These, along with the undead Nosferatu and the men turned wolves, Prikulich, were so real to some people that a host of superstitious necessities were practiced daily to ward them off. Ah, well, said Elisabetta, Aristotle didn't believe that souls were particular things. The soul is what gives the body life, but he didn't feel that individual souls were distinct and different from one another. Christian theologians now know differently. Taking ideas from Aristotle, the great chain of being has been deduced. At the top, we have God, the creator. Below him, the angels, then animals of different types from the noble lion down to vermin, then plants, and, finally, rocks and minerals. Giovanni Pico della Mirandola observed that, after God had created the universe, he decided to create one final form of life, one that didn't fit into the great shame, man. Humans, you see, take the form of animals, but possess the souls of the angelic orders. As hybrids of both types of creation, we can act basely and be like animals, or we can study and reason and feel and ascend to an angelic state. So I could have wings? I like it, said Irina. Oh, and a halo, said Corina. My music tutor gave me harp instructions for a while, said Diana. I wasn't very good. If Corina, a farmer's daughter, was the lowest born of the four, Diana was the wealthiest. She hadn't lived in a castle, but was already accustomed to having servants and tutors around. Elisabetta assigned them all reading materials and dismissed them to their rooms to read. 
Corina tried to take it in, but reading about how Descartes felt our senses could not be trusted, only our ability to reason, she wondered if he'd ever felt fresh, wet soil against his bare toes after a rain, or sat listening to birds sing and waiting to watch a flower bud open. She didn't know philosophy, but she knew nature and wasn't sure how it could be doubted. She took her reading slowly, and it was only after an hour of reading that she remembered that tonight was the night Dominic said she'd be able to go see him. She'd been thinking about it for days, of course, and all morning. Every time they passed a guard on their walk, she hoped it might be Dominic. Yet, at least for a few minutes, she'd been able to focus on her studies, and not the thought of him. Staying awake wasn't hard. She'd never felt more exhilarated. She stood just behind her door for ages, listening to make sure the way would be clear. The door to the next room over was maybe one road away, but it felt like twelve, creeping through the empty hall. She felt that the pounding drum of her heart would surely rouse the entire castle, but once she left her own room, she moved swiftly to the next door's handle. As she tried the door, the sound of drumming instantly ceased. Her heart had stopped. The door was stuck. The handle turned freely, but the door would not move. Trying it again, Corina looked down the hall and saw, from around the corner, the light of a candle. Someone was coming, and there was no time to get back to her own room before she'd be found out. Hours before, as she tried to work through Socrates' arguments in Phaedo, her mind had seemed to move more slowly than a sow wallowing in the sun. Now it raced, perhaps faster even than her heart. She considered, and dismissed, in turn, running back to her room. No, she'd be running toward the person with the candles and wouldn't make it in time. Trying to shove the door. Maybe. It might budge, but it might not. It would make a great deal of noise regardless. Hiding. Not much farther down the hall, just around a slight bend, was a plinth on which a decorative vase stood. Crouching behind it, she might be hidden from view, but if the person with the candle came much closer, she'd be seen instantly. Vanishing. Last week she read about the Ring of Gyges in Plato's Republic. If she had that, she could slip it on, become invisible, and wait for the century to pass. Dying. Similarly, this morning's passage in Phaedo had described how Socrates had drunk hemlock, but she had none, and their discovery seemed horrible, so did death by poisoning. Thus, the only option she could conjure, run and try the next door, which was perhaps only six strides away. She darted down to the door, making it in four, tried the knob, and it opened. Surveying the room should have been the first thing she did, but instead she stopped still and listened. The sentry's footsteps came and went. When they finally seemed to have gone, Corina turned and looked around. The room was similar to hers. It was dark, but the moon was now full, casting enough light to show that she wasn't alone. Halfway across the room, lying on a four-poster bed identical to hers, but with the curtains wide open, lay Freya. Corina's blood froze before she remembered that it was the middle of the night. Freya was clearly asleep. Again, options. Return to her own room, or figure another way to get into the next room. If she gave up and went back, she didn't know when she'd be able to see Dominic again. He'd taken a great risk sneaking out. Wasn't she taking the same risk? Maybe the punishment he faced was on a different scale. It could be weeks or longer before he'd find a way to see her again. In the moonlight, she saw that this room, too, had a balcony. Maybe it adjoined the one next to it? Creeping slowly past slumbering Freya, Corina made it to the balcony door and mercifully found it opened easily. She stepped out, looked both ways, but saw nothing on either side. Dominic had promised the room next to hers would have a balcony. If she was in the room next to it, surely its balcony would be just to the left. Without thinking of the geometry and in terror of awakening Freya, Corina had failed to notice that this room's balcony sat not on the far wall but to its right. The hall outside had had a bend in it, so this balcony must sit around the corner from its neighbor. Looking to her left, she could make out the corner of the building, but even standing on the very edge of the railing, she could not see around the corner. Peering down, she saw only blackness, a vast drop into the abyss above which the castle had been constructed. In the mountains near her village was a small lake. 
The water sparkled in the summertime sun, and someone had tied a thick rope to a tree that grew on its bank. On days when they could get away from their chores, the kids would hike up the hill and take turns jumping off the tree, swinging on the rope and dropping into the water. Getting to the lake required climbing up the rocks and jumping over a small crevice. The first time Corina had gone up, when she was eight or nine, she'd been too afraid to make the jump. The bigger kids had gone on without her, and she'd been left there alone. Eventually, she'd walk back home by herself. She spent that summer drawing up her courage, and, when the chance had come again, she'd made the jump easily. Examining the castle's wall, she saw that the stones were big and roughly cut. She was wearing simple leather sandals. Trying not to think of the endless drop into the chasm below, she loosened the straps, removed the sandals and stockings she wore underneath, stowed them in the apron of the simple outfit she picked out for the night's adventure, and tested the wall of the balcony. Sure enough, by moving carefully, she could crawl along the surface like a lizard. Taking a few cautious steps away from the safety of the landing, she was able to peer around the corner and saw the next room's balcony. Then, though the thought of looking down into the abyss terrified her, she took the quickest of looks downward and saw that, indeed, the room directly below her neighbors also had a balcony, as Dominic had described. The rest of the climb wasn't as terrifying. She made it onto the balcony and even thought to check out its room before leaving. It turned out that a small piece of stone had become wedged under the door she'd been unable to open. Prying it loose, Corina made sure that the door would open again, so she'd be able to return this way rather than risking sneaking back into Freya's room. It made a low moan as she opened it that she was sure would have raised the entire castle, but standing perfectly still for some time, she decided only she'd heard it and moved along. Near the balcony was a small sofa upholstered with a floral pattern. Looking under it, Corina found the rope Dominic had put there. Unrolling it, she saw it was actually a rope ladder with metal hooks on one end. She was able to attach it easily to the stone railing in the balcony, making for a fairly easy climb down to the lower landing. From there, she was able to follow Dominic's instructions to leave her wing of the castle, creeping carefully through the corridors and along an exterior walkway until she found the staircase he'd described, in the rack of torches. She ran her fingers along the left side, finding the release for the latch, and the case swung easily away. She had to bend over to fit into the passage, but it wasn't very tight for her. She pulled the case closed behind her before thinking to turn around and look where she'd be going. It was pitch black inside the wall, but she felt her way along the stones until she came to a turn where she saw a light. As she turned the corner, she found herself looking into Dominic's eyes as he beckoned her inside. The moment she'd crawled through the small passageway, she fell into his arms and burst into tears as the stress of her night and of her captivity these past weeks first overwhelmed her, then seemed to vanish as he held her. Once she composed herself, they sat and talked quietly for some time. His room was a small, simple cell with a single bed, a shelf for a few of his effects, and a wardrobe that was currently pulled away from the wall to allow access to the passageway. She'd been worried the other guards would overhear him, but he assured her the stone walls were quite thick. They talked for a while more. Then the talking stopped. She'd expected to be more nervous, having played out thousands of versions of this night in her mind over the years, now finally having what she'd so long wanted. He, her Cupid, in his palace. She, his psyche, sneaking into the darkness to find him. However horrible her capture by the Count had been, however strange her night life in this castle, she now had something entirely on her terms. She had her Dominic, and he had her, and they were together, body and soul, as one. Days in the castle didn't seem so bad anymore. Sneaking back into her room had been easier than she'd feared. Moving the torch rack aside had given Corina an idea, and they arranged a code that would let her know what nights might be safe for her to come see him again. She described a certain empty candelabra that sat along one of the walls she always passed on her morning walk. If his schedule permitted a meeting that night, he was to place a candle in the middle holder wall on his rounds. Each day, Corina would spend anticipating her walk and had to keep herself from running ahead of the group to look for Dominic's signal. 
The first several mornings in a row, the middle candle was there, and she had to find ways to keep her mind on her studies the rest of the day. She found she did quite enjoy all the reading, and was starting to allow herself to get closer to the other girls. At night, she'd creep into the next room, down her ladder, and into Dominic's bed. After five nights together, two weeks passed before their next, then just a few days, then weeks. It all depended on his schedule, the comings and goings of the other guards to and from the castle, and so on. Spring turned to summer, and the weather grew very hot. A hotter summer than Corina could remember, even though she now spent her days in a cool castle rather than working on the farm. What do you keep in here? asked Corina one night in Dominic's room. She'd need to be heading back to the passageway soon, but for the moment had opened his wardrobe and was looking through its contents. What's that, butterfly? The pet name had developed over the months. In your wardrobe. Clothes? No, this. She held up a small, wooden box. Delicate vines and leaves were carved into its lid. Oh. One of the villagers gave that to me. They had a festival and gave out tokens of appreciation to the members of the order who'd come. I don't really have anything to put in it. It's beautiful. You're beautiful, he said. I wish I could take a drop of your beauty. I keep it in there. She blushed and turned back to him. Maybe she didn't have to leave just yet. One agonizing night, Dominic had given the signal with the candle, but Karina had heard Elisabetta in the corridor outside her room, talking to a man, and she hadn't been able to go. Oh, poor Dominic, waiting until morning for her, wondering why she never arrived. That night, Corina had a bad dream. She dreamt she'd awoken in a sweat, but then the room had grown cold as a mist flowed in through the window, surrounding her bed and enveloping her. Then she was in Plato's cave, the cold mist replaced by the cold of the rocks. She saw shadows moving against the cave's wall and recognized them as those of her mother and father. They were calling for her. Then she was free, and she came out of the cave into the light. She had a ring on her finger, and she found that while she wore it, she was able to do terrible things without anyone noticing. The village was overjoyed to have their princess of springtime back, and no one knew that she was using her magic ring to steal from them, to hurt them, to deceive them. Indeed, she grew more popular, and they placed a flower crown upon her head, raising her up to be the new village leader. She used her new understanding of civics and philosophy to teach them, but while they thought she was a strong, just leader, she knew, but was unable to tell them, that she was actually leading them to ruin. The crops that had withered during the hot summer started to grow again, so they all thought everything was fine. Then something about her changed. She was back at the castle, eating a pomegranate, and her mouth was stained a dark red. She was riding a black horse across the countryside, and the other girls from the castle were with her too, but they were different as well. Freya's horse was an unnatural pale yellow-green in color. Wherever they rode, misery went with them. When finally she awoke, the memory of the dream faded quickly, but the unease persisted. At breakfast, one of the girls, Irina, noticed Karina wasn't speaking. Feeling okay, she asked. Oh, just a bad dream, I think. I'm fine. I had a terrible dream a few nights ago, said Irina. Can't really remember it. There was a wolf, I think, in mist. Mist? Had she dreamt of mist, too? Corina couldn't remember. Oh, I've had that dream, said Freya. Or one like it, I think. Maybe it's just being in a castle that gets our imaginations up. My imagination certainly is, said Diana. Last night I had a dream about one of the castle guards. Just one, said Freya. She raised an eyebrow and gave Diana a flirty look. Well... Several weeks went by before Corina saw Dominic's candle again. As their time together that night grew short, she said, I wish I could stay here with you all night. I don't want to go back to sleep in my own room. Maybe you could save me from my dreams. Dreams? Nightmares. It's nothing, I'm sure. Tell me. I don't remember, really. I just wake up and feel uneasy and know I've had a bad dream. Oh, wait. I do remember last night's. I was home again, except no one could see me. I was in the village, and everyone was talking about how since I'd been gone, all the crops were failing. Maybe because it's been so hot? 
The drought was keeping anything from growing, and it seemed like I could make it better if I could get back there, but no one could hear me. I wanted them to, because I knew if I was actually there, the drought would stop and the crops would grow, but I just had to watch. You've had other dreams, too? I think so, said Karina. That's the only one I can really remember. The other ones are different, somehow. I don't know how to explain. I had the strange feeling that the last one with the drought was my dream, but the others were someone else's? It seems as if it's not really me dreaming, or what I'm dreaming isn't coming from my own head. I'm not sure. It's hard to put together after I wake up, except this terrible mist. I think I see that a lot. Or sometimes moonlight that becomes thick? I don't know. Corina had been lying with her head on Dominic's chest. He sat abruptly upright, and she fell down onto the bed. Mist? I think so. It's nothing, just dreams. He sat still, staring at his wall, at his uniform. He ran his fingers through his hair, then rubbed one hand over the side of his neck. They stayed there for a minute or more as he stared into space. Corina got up and started to dress. What is it? I think... You don't know... I can't talk about... He rose and started pacing around the room, thinking, occasionally saying things like, We need to... Or, maybe you could... Tell me what's wrong. What can I do? What is it about my dreams? Finally, he came over to her. She'd sat down on the bed and was tying her sandals back under her feet. He knelt and put his hands on her shoulders. We need to get you away from this place, but I can't help you. Please, I can't. It's hard even to use these words. You need to find a way out of the castle. Get to the town, maybe. He trailed off for a moment, considering something. But I don't know who you could trust. This is important, said Dominic. You can't see me again, and you can't talk about your dreams with anyone. I'm sorry, Karina. I wish I knew how to help. Just promise me. Promise you'll find a way. You have to escape from Castle Dracula. Thank you for listening. Chapter 4, Into the Labyrinth, will be out in two weeks. You can follow Wallachia on Twitter at WallachiaNet or on the web at Wallachia.net. If you'd like to read or listen ahead, you can download the Wallachia app for free from the iOS App Store.